Would you please open your Bibles with me to Mark? Uh, we're beginning at chapter 11. We're going to look from Mark chapter 11, 11 to chapter 12, verse 12. So we'll read that section to start with, and then we'll ask the Lord's help to apply this to our hearts and understand it. Mark chapter 11, verse 11 to 12, verse 12. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it is, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So Jesus answered them, or so, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant 
to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us see the truth in your word. Help us apply this to our lives and our hearts. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. May we understand your word to us. And may we repent and believe and put ourselves under your word. That you may speak to us and call us to be your people. Give us humility. Give us life. Give us love for you and love for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've been here with us for a while, you'll know that we've been working through the book of Mark together. And Mark is a really super fast gospel into the life of Christ. What happened in the ancient world is that Jesus rose to great prominence. He was a, a, a recognized figure. People knew who he was at least on the surface, right? They, they knew of him. But, but many people didn't really know him. They didn't know who he was really like. And, and they tried to, like so many of us do, do when we see somebody, they tried to put Jesus in a box. So could he be a religious leader? Or is he a philosopher? Or is he just a moral man? Or is he a revolutionary? Or is he a martyr? And, and the thing is, no one of those boxes actually fits Jesus. Mark's gospel is written to reveal Jesus on his own terms so that he squashes all the boxes. And and we see him for who he really is. Friends, I wonder, were some of your boxes squashed? I mean, that idea of putting Jesus into a box, that's not just ancient. We do that now, right? Oh, he's like this, and therefore he has this role in my life. We put Jesus into a box all the time. And And this passage, if we're honest, probably squashes some of those boxes because Jesus does things that we're, quite frankly, uncomfortable with. He he drives people out of the temple. He curses a fig tree. I mean, what did the poor fig tree do? But you see, friends, if we make Jesus fit into our own box, we'll never know him truly. And we'll never worship him. Because whatever box we make for Jesus will inevitably be too small. It will not capture who he is. So let's work through this passage together. And I think what we'll see here is something great about Jesus' authority. We'll understand Jesus' authority more clearly. And we will see how we must respond to him. So the first thing we have to understand about this passage is geography. 
geography lesson, folks. Right? Where is this, these events taking place? You'll notice that they center around the temple. It's Passover time. And Jesus, like so many other Jewish people at the time, are going up to Jerusalem. No matter where you were, you always went up to Jerusalem because it was the center part of Israel's life. And it was the center of Israel's life because it had in it the temple. It's really difficult for us, uh, particularly if we're from the West, to understand the significance of the temple, what place it had in their lives. I heard one person take a stab at it by saying it's, it's sort of like if, imagine, if you're from here in America, that uh, the, the U.S. Capitol building, the, the Jefferson Memorial, Disneyland, and the biggest church in America were all rolled into one, one place. Can, can you imagine one place occupying all those aspects of our cultural life? Well, that's what the temple did. It was, it was the center of their religious life, their political life. It was a memorial, a monument. And it was the place where the people met with God. It was the meeting place between God and man. That's, that's what the temple was. And, and Jesus is spending a lot of time in the temple. We'll talk about why. But we also notice in this passage that even though he's, he's in Jerusalem for the, for the Passover, he is actually staying in Bethany, which is a few miles away from Jerusalem, probably at the home of Mary and Martha. And then every day he's making a trip into Jerusalem. And the first day he gets there, he just goes straight for the temple. It doesn't appear he stopped in Bethany first. He just goes straight to the temple. And notice what he says there in verse 11. He looked around at everything. he's, He's looking around. He's standing in the temple. He's sizing the whole thing up. The picture I get here is that Jesus is walking into the temple as you or I might walk into our house after being at the beach for a week. Maybe somebody else was living there at the time, and, and we walk into our house, and we kind of survey things. Okay, dishes need to be done. Floor needs to be swept. You know, we're taking stock of what our house is like at that time. She's just looking around at the temple like that because it's his house, right? He has personal ownership of the temple. And what does he see there? He sees great activity. He sees what, quite frankly, many of us would love to see in our church, in our church, um, or at least we would like to see at a superficial level in our church. He sees that people are happy to be there. He sees that attendance is way up. Giving apparently is way up because, oh my, look at the size of this place. It is huge. And there's a buzz about it. There's there's a good feeling about the place. And it looks really good until you get too close. Until you start to see what's really there. And how do we know it doesn't look too good when we get close? Well, because of the acted out parable, the illustration that Jesus gives of what it's like there. The next day, he goes to Jerusalem, and Jesus sees a fig tree in the distance. Now, from what I've read in the the commentaries, the way fig trees work, and if you have personal experience, you can correct me afterwards if I'm I'm wrong, but but from what I've read, uh, the, the way fig trees work is the leaves kind of grow out in clusters, and then the fruit emerges from within that cluster of the leaves. If you see a fig tree in leaf, meaning that there's leaves around it, you see those clusters of leaves, it usually means that there's a fruit inside, although sometimes that fruit might be rotten or the fruit might not be there yet. Usually the leaves are an indication of the fruit's there, 
but sometimes it's not. Jesus sees the tree in leaf from a distance, and he thinks, oh, it's, it's giving the appearance of, here's a nice snack for a hungry traveler. You know, he didn't have 7-Eleven there. He's, he's walking along on this road. He's hungry. Oh, a fig tree. It's going to be a good snack. He gets closer. He inspects it. There's no fruit there. It's giving the appearance of fruit, but there's nothing there. I'll give you a contemporary analogy. This past Christmas day, my, my, my family, we were driving north, and I was a traveler in need of a caffeine beverage. So I, you know... Looked for the nearest Starbucks. I, I took a little detour. I saw that green sign, which usually means, oh, bold, good aroma ahead. I got there, and it was dark. So I said, curse you, Starbucks. No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> it gave the appearance of having something there, but upon closer, closer inspection, it, it really wasn't. And Jesus is painting that picture, something that looks good on the outside, but inside it's empty. Inside it's rotten. And Jesus is saying, this is what Israel's worship is like. This is what the temple worship is like. Attendance is great. Giving is great. There's a buzz about the place, but inwardly they're sick. Behind the leaves, there's no real fruit. So what does Jesus do? He goes right into the temple. And, and there's, you know, part of the reason why there's, there's money changers there. There's buyers and sellers there. We'll talk about that. And he, he just throws them out. He, he goes, you know, it looks like he's, he's lost it. He starts overturning tables. He's, he's chasing these people out. He's not letting anybody pass through. No, you can't come here, Jesus is saying. Now, what's going on here? Well, there's actually multiple layers of meaning behind this act. Let me try to peel them apart for you. First, very straightforwardly, Jesus is just confronting their hypocrisy. I mean, at one level, this is hypocrisy, pure and simple. He says, you have turned the house of prayer into a den of robbers. They're robbers. They're stealing from people. In the temple of all places. The temple is a place where God meets with his people. But they are using that meeting to swindle people out of their money. Some people are. So Jesus is confronting what is pure and simple hypocrisy. Friends, it's, it's amazing how the human heart will use religion for its own gain, right? We're, we're that sick as people. Now, applying this, it would be easy to talk about how Jesus would confront the health, wealth, prosperity preachers out there, the people who, who get on TV or whatever and say, if you give me money, I will make you well. And, and then they're you know, flying in their own personal jets and they're taking money from people who, who really can't afford to give it. And that would be a perfect illustration of hypocrisy right there and of applying this passage. But, but let's also look at our own hearts. The thing about hypocrisy is that no one ever thinks they're hypocritical, right? Our actions always seem justified to us. We have reasons for doing what we're doing. Nobody thinks of themselves as, as being hypocritical, and yet we may be anyway. We still could be in our hearts. If we actually think we're immune to hypocrisy, let me suggest that that is hypocrisy. Jesus says to the church in Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Jesus goes on to say, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. 
Friends, it doesn't work to have just done that once. Oh, we were really bad back then, but now we've repented and, and we've gotten all that out of our system. We're good. No. No, we need to continually do those things. We need to continually remember. We need to continually keep the gospel, keep that truth close to us. Repentance must be a way of life. Quote that I've said before by Martin Luther, this life is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. We're All does not gleam in glory, but all is being purified. That's a life of repentance. We're going there. That's what we need. Jesus is confronting their hypocrisy. Secondly, a particular aspect of their hypocrisy is that the Jewish people have forgotten their calling to be a blessing to the the nations. They've forgotten their calling to be a blessing to the nations. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Why add that bit about the nations? What's that doing there? It's a quote, actually, by the way, from Isaiah 56, 7. Isaiah there, in the context of the book, Isaiah is talking about Israel's true purpose, their calling. Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, are chosen by God to live in such a way that the other nations out there will recognize something different about them, and then the other nations will flock to Israel to figure out what that is. Israel was there to be a light to the the nations. And when the nations came to Israel, you know, it was changed in Jesus where Jews, Gentiles come on the same footing. But before Jesus changed that, they they had to come to the Jewish people and, and accept their religion on their own terms, as Jewish terms. And that meant that the temple was reserved for only Jewish people, but there was a court for the Gentiles where the Gentiles could come and pray. So Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. Nations come and see what's up with Israel. And when they come, they're going to come to the court of the Gentiles, the court of the nations. That word Gentiles and nations means the same thing in in Greek. They're, They're coming to the nations. The problem is, all that buying and selling going on, it's happening in the court of the Gentiles. So so Israel has has just filled up the place where the nations are going to come and gather with their commerce. It'd be like they took a giant Walmart and put it right down where the nations were supposed to come and pray. And this sends a sign to the nations, not welcome here, no room for you. It's very odd for a nation whose purpose is to be a light to the nations, right? What did the religious leaders think there about the Abrahamic covenant where God said, through you I will bless the nations? Oh, we forgot about that part. We're just interested in making some money. Jesus is confronting that. And friends, Jesus has zero tolerance for those who would gather together in his name without any concern for those who don't yet know him. Zero tolerance for that. Friends, let's not be like that. Let's realize that to like Jesus is to like sharing Jesus with others. That's just the way it goes. But there's an even deeper reality to what Jesus is doing here. You see, the the prophecies of what it will be like when the Messiah comes. You know, the Old Testament is filled with prophecies. When the Messiah comes, this will be, that will be. Well, one of them in Zechariah 14.21 is that 
There will no longer be a trader, that is not a double agent, but someone who buys and sells, you know, a business person. No longer a trader, a business person, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. On the day the Messiah comes, they won't be there anymore. So even if they weren't taking up the court of the Gentiles, even if they weren't robbing from the people, there will be a day when the temple of God will be exclusively for the worship of God. And the cleansing of the temple is Jesus saying, that day has come. I am bringing that day. See, Jesus here is not merely restoring the temple to what it was before, what it was supposed to be. Jesus, rather, is transforming the temple into what it will become because he is the new temple. A little bit later, Jesus is going to say, tear down the temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Clearly there, he's not talking about the physical structure. He's talking about himself. He is the temple of the Lord. He is the meeting place between God and man. And we see that later on in this passage. In uh, chapter 12, verse 10, Jesus quotes to them from the Old Testament. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Well, there's, there's tons of theology in here. I'm, I'm trying to kind of sum it up here a little bit. But the idea of cornerstone harkens back to the temple. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation of the temple. The irony here, what's going on, is that the religious leaders look at Jesus and they say, oh, this guy's bad for the temple. But who is he really? He's the cornerstone of the temple. He's the structure of the temple. And by their rejection of Jesus, because they think he's bad for the temple, bad for temple business, they actually cause his death, which is the means by which he becomes the new temple. Jesus is the temple of God, the new temple, the meeting place between God and man, because he takes upon our sin and dies on the cross to be a sacrifice for that sin in our place so that God then can treat us uh, solely with his love. He can welcome us into his presence because the penalty for our sin before our rebellion against him has been done away with. God can then welcome us as his sons and daughters. That's a beautiful thing. And he does that in Christ Jesus because Christ is our redemption, our sacrifice. He is therefore the new temple. Now, after cleansing the temple, Jesus leaves Jerusalem goes back to Bethany, and then he returns again to Jerusalem. And lo and behold, that fig tree that he cursed has rotted down to the roots. And Peter remembers what Jesus said, and he's like, wow, you know, what happened there? And the point that Jesus is making is that because Israel is fruitless, like this tree, they too will die. Israel's religion was rotten from the inside, and therefore the outward structure The religious leaders who are taking it in that direction will be destroyed. But Jesus expects something different from his disciples. Notice what he says to them. This is, see, Jesus is is working in the disciples that they would become the new leaders of the people. He tells them, verse 22, have faith in God. And then he talks to them about believing and not doubting. That word for doubt there is a word that means to dispute among yourself dispute within yourself to to have two minds to to be pulled in two different directions internally we have competing loyalties competing sources of authority uh, competing desires 
Jesus is saying, don't do that. Trust in God and God alone. I wanted to think a little bit more about doubt this week, so I read a book on it, a great book by Oz Guinness called Doubt, Faith in Two Minds. Highly recommend it. Um, It's old, so you can get it on Amazon used books for like one cent or something like that. But it's it's a great book. And, And this is what he says. Doubt is an inner state of mind so torn between various options that it cannot make up its mind. He says, genuine faith is unreserved in its commitment. Doubt has reservations. Faith steps forward. Doubt hangs back. Doubt holds itself open to all possibilities, but is reluctant to close on any one of them. The Gospel of Mark is particularly written to help us work through our doubts. You might remember a few weeks ago, Steve preached a sermon where the man with the boy who had the demon, uh, said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. That's a person struggling with doubt. They have faith in two minds. They believe and they don't believe at the same time. They harbor doubts. Friends, my guess is that in this room, there are a lot more doubts than we'd like to admit. We kind of like to think of ourselves as above doubting. Oh, I don't, I don't do that. No, other Christians might do that. I I don't doubt, because doubting somehow feels shameful. We aren't that kind of person. The problem is we're probably lying to ourselves if we're doing that. And unless we actually confront our doubts, our faith is never on any solid foundation, and then we remain perpetually immature. Jesus wants us not to doubt, but the way to do that is not just to pretend our doubts don't exist The way to do that is to confront our doubts and find out what are the true foundations of our faith so that we can stand secure. And Jesus here makes some staggering promises. He says, if you believe and don't doubt, you can say to this mountain, mountain be thrown in the sea and then it'll happen. How do we understand what's going on there? Some people teach that if we just believe strongly enough, if we just have enough faith, then God will never say no to anything that we ask of him. To which I want to say, well, what about when Jesus prays, take this cup from me? And yet he receives the full cup anyway. And what about when the apostle Paul prays three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed? And yet it is not. No, there is no scriptural promise that if we believe hard enough, then God will certainly answer our prayer in the way We want it to be answered. I think here when Jesus talks about the mountain being thrown into the sea, I think that would trigger in the disciples' minds, it should trigger in their minds, another prophecy from Zechariah 14. That, by the way, apparently is the passage to go home and read today, right? That's one to reflect on. That passage says that when the Messiah comes, the Mount of Olives will split in two. The, The mountains will turn into a plain. In other words... It'll be a clear path for the Messiah to come. I think Jesus is talking about praying in faith for the Messiah to come. You have to understand that that expectations of the Messiah, of the Savior, of the Deliverer, were were ripe in the people. They they longed for a Messiah to come. They, They read their Old Testament that talked about a coming Deliverer, one like Moses who would come and lead the people to victory, to 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 safety. And they longed for him, but yet they waited so long that they began to doubt. Will he ever arrive? Do we have to do it on our own? 
Jesus says, no, pray in faith for the Messiah to come, and you will realize he's already here. Friends, how strong is your faith in Christ? Please understand, I'm not speaking to any unbelievers who are here. I'm happy that you're here, speaking to you too, in a sense. But I'm also wanting to speak to the Christians here. How strong is your faith in Christ? How strongly and solidly do you really believe in him? The Bible, you know, I think sometimes we think of faith as just this one-time thing. Oh, I believe. Therefore, up, check, that's done. The Bible, though, talks about faith as something that is going to grow and mature and strengthen and develop. And the thing is, if we're not strengthening and developing our faith, it's getting weaker. You know, it's like exercise. We don't really stay in the same place much, do we? We're either getting stronger or there's atrophy. We're, we're, We're going back down. That's what our faith is like. The Bible talks about strengthening our faith, making our belief in Jesus more solid. That is something that all Christians must do continually. Jesus tells us something else here that that may at first seem out of place. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against someone. Well, where did that come from? Wait a minute. Jesus, Jesus, you're talking about individual personal faith in Christ. Why do we get this, oh, I've got to forgive one another as well? It's only going to seem contradictory, out of place, if we have sort of a Western individualism mindset that we bring to this passage. In actuality, they're very much related. You see, if you are having faith in Christ, if you do believe in him, That means that we interact with others in a different kind of way. I mean, the point of this, uh, the passages, the point of the New Testament is that the Messiah has come. Jesus really is Lord. He is really doing something that, that he said he would do, and now he's actually doing it. He's creating this new world. He has this new authority. He's instituting these new things. His, his redemption, his Holy Spirit, he's giving. Now live like that. Live like Jesus' people. Live like people who who know him, because he really is who he says he is. And that way we live amongst ourselves will be shaped by who we believe Jesus is. So you can't, well, you you could. You could say, I believe in God, and then not forgive others. Hold grudges and be bitter uh, continually. But that raises significant questions. Do you really believe in him? Uh, Part of Part of the reason why God gives us a a fellowship amongst other brothers and sisters in Christ is because, you know what, sometimes it's hard to forgive them. Sometimes they step on our toes, and sometimes they rub us the wrong way. Sometimes they do it by accident, and sometimes they do it on purpose. God's call, in light of who Jesus is, is that we would forgive one another. And whether or not we can do that, it, it bears witness to whether or not we really have faith in him. Now, our time is running out, but I want to look very briefly at the rest of this passage, because in the rest of this passage, I think we see one thing about the nature of Jesus that encourages us to put our faith in him, and then we see one warning for what happens if we don't. Jesus comes again into Jerusalem. If you're keeping track, this is his third time there. The day before, he overturned all the tables and drove out the buyers and the sellers, And now when he comes in, the religious leaders come up to question him. No wonder why, right? Here's the guy who just overturned all the tables. Quick, here he comes. Let's run interference, because who knows what he's going to do this time. 
So they come to him in verse 27. They say, by what authority do you do these things? That's a loaded question. In other words, they're saying, who do you think you are to cause such ruckus in the temple? Do you have a direct word from God? And we could kind of read between the lines, and what they would be saying here is, you're certainly not part of us. You certainly don't have our okay to do these things. So, so by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the right to act this way in the temple? And they think they have Jesus in a trap. Because they think that whatever he answers, they can discredit him. You know, you've seen the, the politicians are very careful with what they say because they know that somebody's going to take their words and try to twist them in whatever way they can. That's what they want to do. And they want Jesus to open his mouth and say something that they can use against him. It's not a real question. It's a means to trap him. Jesus responds, verse 29. I will ask you one question. If you answer me, then I will tell you. I mean, that seems fair, doesn't it? Right? They can't argue with that. This is Jesus' question. The baptism from John, or really John's ministry in general, John the Baptist, is that from heaven, meaning truly from God, or is it from man? Now, that might not seem like, oh, what's so special about that question, but it's really brilliant, because the people at the time thought John was really from God. They thought very highly of John. I mean, he was a popular preacher, and then, before he could do anything that made people too mad, he was martyred. Right? So, so then he was this beloved martyred figure. I mean, think, uh, think today. Think, think how people would have thought of Abraham Lincoln or, or Martin Luther King. Uh, national heroes, right? To go against them is to commit political suicide, right? I mean, if, if these are people, are beloved figures. So the religious leaders are stuck. Because if they say that John's ministry was really from God, then Jesus is going to respond, why don't you believe what he said? And John said, looking at Jesus, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Son of God. John affirmed Jesus' authority and ministry. But on the other hand, if the religious leaders discount John's authority and ministry, well then, they're going to lose all respect of the people. So they give the answer that doubters and skeptics give. Which is, we don't know. I mean, it's much easier to doubt, right? Because your convictions don't cost you. It's when you actually affirm something that means that you then have to deny something else that your convictions can get you into trouble. So the easier road is to just say, I don't know. Which could be a statement of humility when you really don't know, and that's good to say. Or it could be the lazy way out because you're not willing to actually commit to something. And Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So here what we see in Jesus is his amazing wisdom. And that gives us even more warrant, even more reason why we should trust in him. Jesus is able to silence their opponents and make them be revealed as a fool. I hope you're not offended by this, but it reminds me of uh, the cartoon that I watched sometimes as a kid. You know, the Roadrunner and the Coyote. You've seen that? If you're really young here, you haven't. Cartoons are more sophisticated now, but back then they were just two people chasing each other around. And and the Coyote always tries to trap the Roadrunner. And the Coyote always falls in the trap that he set. And the, the Roadrunner leaves, you know, beep, beep, and just goes away. 
how does, that's what Jesus does here. He traps them. How does he do that? He basically applies the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs says, do not answer a fool in his folly, lest you become a fool. There are some questions that you just can't answer. They're designed to trap you. The wisdom of Jesus is to identify that and know how to get out of the trap. Friends, this brings up one aspect of Jesus' character that I don't think we appreciate as fully as we ought to. And that is his wisdom. He is the wisdom of God for us, the Bible says. We like to think of Jesus as our, our redemption, our holiness, our Savior. He is also, the Bible says, our wisdom. I think we don't think of that as much today because the world that we live in doesn't value wisdom very highly. It values uh, authority, power, freedom, material possessions, pleasure. Those things are really high up on the list. But the Bible would actually say that, you know, not that those things are bad, they can be quite good, but unless you have wisdom, those things are just going to get you into trouble. Wisdom is good. The Bible says, buy wisdom. Above all else, get wisdom. How do we get wisdom? Answer, we get Jesus. And he is the wisdom of God for us. Do you lack wisdom? Ask God to give you more of Jesus, that you would know him more. He is the wisdom of God for you. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, we would never have come up with what Jesus did in that moment, right? I think I might, you know, in that moment, putting myself there, I might in my pride want to say, I'll tell you who I am. Make a big fool out of myself, and they'd be like, got you. Jesus has the wisdom, has the faith in God, has the knowledge to be cool and calm in that situation, knows exactly what to do. Oh, I need wisdom. I need Jesus. Now, what happens if we don't get wisdom? Well, we end up like these religious leaders. Jesus tells a parable against them. A farmer had a vineyard and rented it out to others. And he sends the servants to collect the payment. And all the servants are rejected. What Jesus is referring to here is what happened in the Old Testament. When prophet after prophet spoke God's word to the nation of Israel, and while you read the Old Testament, they didn't have a great life expectancy. They were killed. They were beaten. They were rejected. Finally, God sends his son, the one with the greatest authority, And they kill the son, trying to get the vineyard all to himself. This is a clear indictment of the religious leaders back then. And the Pharisees all knew it. The religious leaders all knew it. Because they knew that they were plotting in that moment to destroy Jesus. It says that a couple times in this passage. And they're doing that because they don't want Jesus to interfere with their control of the religious life of the people. See, this parable really turns things around on them. The Pharisees are thinking, let's get rid of Jesus because he's interfering with what we've got going on in terms of our control of the religious people. Jesus says, no, you're interfering with what God is doing to save his people and bring them to himself. He's making the point, this isn't your nation. These aren't your people. This isn't your temple. It's all God's. And he's not so happy with the way that you have rejected every one of his messengers. Jesus is saying to the religious leadership that because they have rejected him, he has rejected them. And now he's going to give that leadership over to others. Twelve very unimpressive looking disciples will will take up the mantle of teaching God's word to other people. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, 
you might be tempted to look at the commands of Jesus and the sayings of Jesus, and you might be tempted to think, who does he think he is interfering with my life? Come on, Jesus. Don't even look with somebody with lust. Gouge out your eye if he causes you to sin. Follow me to death. Come on, Jesus. Why are you interfering with what I've got going on? Oh, but the reality is, if we're not following Jesus, if we're not valuing him above all else, we are interfering with what God has got going on, namely the the redemption of his people, the people that he is purifying for himself. Bottom line, if you put Jesus in a box, you'll never know him. Your version of Jesus will be far less than who he truly is. Oh, your, your life might be safer in some respects, but you will be rejecting the one who can give you life. But if you believe in Jesus for who he really is, trusting in him, depending on his grace and mercy, his love, his goodness, and not doubting, well, who knows what your life will end up being like? But it will be good because he is the king. Let's pray.